Welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks so much for coming on. Sean, it's great to have you. Uh, great to be on with you, rather. Yeah, great to have you here as well. Obviously, you've got a, a new podcast out called The What's Essential Podcast, new book, Effortless. Uh, and then, you know, of course, you've got other books as well, Essentialism, which is really one of my personal favorites. And you've got multipliers as well. And uh, we'll, we'll be sure to talk about all of these in deeper detail. Um, and I just want to maybe start off with getting an understanding of, of course, I've read the book Essentialism and just was really one of my initial entry points into really rethinking the whole perspective of how I look at time and mm -hmm. leverage and mm -hmm. my own strengths. I'm curious to know for you, what has been your journey to discover this idea of essentialism? Um, I was working with Silicon Valley companies and noticed a predictable pattern that they would, uh, that, that some of these ventures, when they, if they became successful, it was because they achieved clarity. So they knew who they were and who they weren't. Sometimes that was luck, but one way or another, whether it was by design or by default, they got clarity. That generated such focus, it built momentum, led to success. Success breeded so many options and opportunities. If these ventures weren't careful, they would undermine the very clarity that led to success in the first place. And so you have this unusual pattern where if you, if you sort of just go, if, if you let success be your guide, you can end up plateauing in your progress or even failing altogether. Uh, I call it the success paradox for that reason, uh, because success often produces so many options, it leads you to the undisciplined pursuit of more. Many entrepreneurs struggle with this because they're fascinated and interested in lots of things. And as opportunities grow, they start thinking, okay, well, I'd like to do it all. Um, and I can do it all if they think they can. But the undisciplined pursuit of more is something to be really cautious around. And, and what I found is that the ventures that sustained their success or even broke through to the next level, uh, they, they pursued a different strategy, the disciplined pursuit of less, uh, particularly the idea of less but better, being more careful, more selective, more thoughtful about all the different opportunities that you have. So you're focusing, and this is where the book gets its title, on what's really essential, eliminating the non-essential and making it as easy as possible to continue to do the things that really matter most, uh, you know, rather than just doing all of the trivial many. And that's sort of one of the stories behind how I got to essentialism. Yeah, it's kind of a, a, a ironic uh, realization I'm sure you've had, which is the idea that success can create more chaos for a lot of people. And of course, the person that's starting out is thinking, okay, this is such an amazing problem to have. Mm. Um, but until you get there, you're just not really prepared for all the opportunities that come your way. And might be good before we dig in to get a little bit deeper on kind of the origins of this. You were talking a little bit about uh, the idea of this being rooted in the Puritan idea and this rooted belief that this act. Oh, you mean with the book Effortless now? Not with essentialism, but with Effortless, yes? With Effortless, yeah. Yes, I, but I guess the, the concepts of. Mm -hmm how the origins start may relate where we've just kind of fallen in love with this idea of doing hard things and 
maybe mistakenly believing that there's a, there's this inherent value, as you mentioned, um, where we've kind of loved, we've kind of distrusted this thing of, of, of easy and mm-hmm. things kind of giving to us. Talk to us a little bit about the histories behind that and, and, and how that's relatable <clears throat> for people. Yeah. I mean, let's effortless, um, writing effortless is a potentially dangerous thing to have done. And the reason I say that is because <clears throat> in to the wrong audience, I think someone could take away the wrong lessons for their life, for their business, for everything. You know, I write for a particular audience, or at least I have with essentialism and with effortless. I'm writing to people who are in what my brother Justin calls the hit squad. Um, that's the hardworking, intelligent, talented group. These are people who are high performing. They're highly engaged. They're already doing many of the the foundationally productive things in their lives. But the problem for that group of people is that they can start to run out of space. So they're highly engaged, but they start to teeter on the edge of exhaustion. Uh, They're giving a lot and they're getting results, but they're starting to, you know, potentially burn out a bit or plateau for the reasons we just talked about with Silicon Valley companies. So what, what I want to say to that group of people is, you know, that do you, well, two questions that'll put this all into perspective. First is, do you want 10x results, right? Do you today, Sean, do you and I want 10x results? Does the person listening and watching this, do they want 10x results? And, and if they're in the group we're talking about, the answer is yes, they do. They're highly driven to achieve higher levels. They want to break through to the next level of contribution. They want to operate at the highest point of contribution they possibly can. That's sort of who they are. That's built into their DNA. That's how they're wired. Now, the question is, now the second question is, can you or I or anyone listening to this work 10x harder? And the answer to that question is no, they can't. And if they can, then, then they have a different strategy available to them, right? Anyone who's listening to this who can work 10 times harder should work harder. I mean, like, that's fine. That's a perfectly sensible strategy. It's, a, it's, it's one that will produce much better results. If someone's just not doing anything, if they're just not, if they're talking all the time about it, but they're not taking action, right? There's a strategy for that. And there's loads that's been written about that. And I'm just not writing to that group, to that situation. I'm talking about well, what happens once you start to be successful, once you start to implement those strategies. You can't just 10x that strategy. It, it has a limit. You can't work 10 times harder. So if you want 10x results, you have to find an alternative approach. And that's what effortless is about. Effortless is about saying, don't just say, well, I'm just going to work harder and harder and harder because it's the only strategy. I'm going to distrust the easy because I've, I've been rewarded for working harder. Of course you've been rewarded for working harder, but there's a limit to it. There's an upper bound to it. And so if you want to go to the next level, even a 10 X level, you're going to have to find a better, smarter, even easier set of strategies to be able to perform at that higher level. And that's, that's really what is exciting to me about writing effortless. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the, there's principles. If I'm, if I'm looking at this and I'm currently struggling to execute on the things that I need and that, uh, that, that I, I need to, I could also see these principles coming into light and being helpful because even though you may not be executing at your highest level, just the fact that you have the principles in mind of knowing mm. what to work on and working on the essential things could probably get you a lot further and faster than someone that is trying to execute, but they're just kind of doing all of the things and running around in circles and burnt out and not really being productive with their time. So I guess there are principles that both sides can, can mm. really learn from, but I, I, I get your point about the people that will really benefit from them are the people that are currently about to burn out and have this false, you know, uh, con conception of thinking that easy things are meant to be distrusted in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I think that, I think that it's, I mean, I think that the value proposition with effortless is just to say, to start inverting the question instead of thinking, how can I push more to get a better result? You just say, well, is there, is there a smarter strategy? Is there an effortless strategy to doing this? What would the effortless way be to approach this problem? And because you ask a better question, you start to get new insights and ideas. And it opens up tremendous possibility because, uh, because instead of saying, well, the goal I have seems so hard and yes, maybe it's possible, but it's going to take me 10 years. You start to say, well, well, what if, what if you could do it in a year? What would the effortless mm. way be to do it? Who could you learn from that could significantly reduce the amount of time that you were expecting to put into this? So I'm as in favor of effort as, effort as anybody you're ever going to talk to, but I recognize there's a limit. And so what we want is to say, well, how do you take the essential things, make them as effortless as possible so that you can do them, you can do them consistently, and then you can take all the advantages or the cumulative advantage uh, that comes from consistently doing the things that matter most. Right, right. Yeah, and, and, and I can totally relate to this because, you know, there's this, there's this running joke, right, which is the, the, by the time you have three to-do lists and you finish them, you've already got 10 other things that are on your list. And it's just such a common thing for particularly for the type A individual that's, that's listening to this. I mean, have you given it to any thought in terms of what it is it about humans where we're constantly wired to add things instead of subtracting things in our lives? And this isn't just productivity. This isn't just tasks. This is often society telling us to be more, to do more, you know, to, to, to have more, and yeah, I guess, I, I guess for me, when I look back at parts of my life, when I've had the most impact, it's often been subtracting or removing parts of me that mm -hmm. really wasn't really who I really was. And yeah, I would love to kind of dig deeper into this idea of subtraction to, to get ahead versus constantly needing to, to add things. Mm. Yeah. I mean, first of all, we are mimetic creatures, right? We, a lot of what we do is, is based in observing what other people do. Uh, a lot of what we desire, in fact, is based in what we not only see other people getting, 
but just what we believe other people want. So we want things often because we believe other people want them. I just had um, the author of a book called Wanting on the What's Essential podcast, and he was the one sort of explaining that specific analysis. And I think it's so, it's so right. And so in a world that has far more optionality than in really any generation, any period of, of recorded history, by not, by not by a small amount, not by 10% or 100%, but by, by a thousand, a million X, mm. That's the world we're living in. So even if somebody individually doesn't feel especially successful yet in their lives, right? They're listening to this and they're going, wow, there's so much I want to do. And I, you know, I've got so much ahead of me and I haven't figured out at all. But yeah. That doesn't mean they're not successful. It just means that they are looking at new other aspirations they haven't reached yet. The fact that they're able to listen to this means they're literate. The fact that they have time on their hands to be able to to watch and listen to this means that they, ha- that they live in a prosperous time. The, the fact that they're watching it and listening, it means we probably have a high, high, you know, I- I- highly impressive, uh, you know, digital tools to be able to do that. They have so much available optionality. And so in today's environment, there's so much stuff you can do, could do at any given moment you find yourself like those Silicon Valley companies stretch too thin. Just, yeah. there's, there's more, there's always more. And someone you're listening yeah. to, some influencer is doing something you've never done before. And you go, oh, that's a pretty cool thing. And I want to add that thing and that thing. And they seem to think this thing is important. And you're just adding all the time. And so, so I, think that, I think that there's sort of a deep human nature thing here, right? We're mimetic creatures, as I mentioned, but we also live in a time of, tremendous optionality, the undisciplined pursuit of more names, our culture. And, and so there's all of that with one final additional problem, which is that there's no, there's very few uh, elements of human systems that, that are designed to simplify. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, I've generally said that there's only two things that can simplify anything uh, in a human system. Uh, one is failure of the system. Uh, failure simplifies. Like blockbusters are a lot simpler now than they used to be. Uh, and I only say that, you know, half jokingly. It's like, yeah, failure simplifies. Uh, the, the only other th- force I know of that can do it is, a, is an essentialist, is a person who decides I am going to simplify before I have to. I'm going to declutter before I have to. I'm going to Marie Kondo my, my closet but not just my closet, also the closet of my mind so that I'm not in a sort of cluttered mental state all the time. And I'm going to declutter my schedule so that I'm not just constantly running back to back and late for everything and so on. Uh, and so that's, it's, it's, this is why I advocate so strongly for this is that an essentialist is the only alternative to failure when it comes to simplification. A person must simplify before they have to. A leader simplifies before they have to. Uh, and, and that's the more intentional, smarter way to become successful at success mm. rather than letting success guide all of your decisions, you know, in a reactive format, which does, as we already discussed, undermines the success that got you there in the first place. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting time, right? Because we, at this present moment, have never lived in a time with more leverage, with more information, accessibility, from the advent of technology, software, code, automation, all of these things, 
Whereas the only leverage we really had back in the days were, you know, humans initially and then the industrial revolution came. So we had tools and technology that kind of start to evolve. And now we've got automation and it can kind of lead to maybe some misconceptions for people thinking that they can leverage these automated tools to do more things. And they certainly can, but it seems there is always going to be a limit on human creativity and our own brains and our mental capacity of the things that we can do at a high level. What are your thoughts around that? The fact that we have these automated technologies where maybe you can automate certain things in your life that allows you to have a little bit more time. So you can do more things or you can outsource certain things with the advent of global remote work. There are certainly more tools that allows us to do more things, but is this, is this a misconception? Is there, is there, um, maybe a limit that people are over or are underestimating that the, the fact that they think they can do more when there really is a downside to this? Um, y- y- yes. Uh, but I, I think that the, the way I would, the way I've been trying to wrestle with the question you're asking is, is master versus servant, right? Like the, the, the digital revolution with all of its ongoing explosion of tools uh, and platforms. I mean, th- this is, this truly is game changing and it continues to be. Um, the question is, do you utilize those tools to achieve essential ends or are you utilized by them? Um, you know, like to use a concrete example, you think about social media, let's say 1% of people are creating, you know, well, just even creating content, you know, so that's a smaller group. And then let's say maybe there's another 40, 50% of people who are absorbing that content and interacting with it, you know, liking it, sharing it and so on that, that, and then the rest of, everybody is just a silent observer. So they're, they're, they're there for the conversation, but they're not participating in it. Like what I would try to advocate is, is don't be in the silent group and don't even be in the interactive group, be in the first group. You want to utilize the tools that you have in a purposeful, intentional way to, to pursue something meaningful, to make a difference, to make an impact. And if you find yourself uh, spending a lot of time in social media just observing everybody else. It's like, well, you're not contributing. You're not pushing the conversation forward. You're not pursuing meaningful goals. You're just kind of being, being, being fed by other people's agenda. Uh, so, so that's how I, I I think it's, we live in a super empowered generation in theory, right? Anyone can have a voice. That's, that's unbelievable. I mean, that is like so new in the human condition. It is, it is, shocking if you take anything like a long-term perspective it is a peter drucker talked about this he said we this is we're living in a fundamentally new human condition he said he said he said if you look at our times from a from from like let's say two or three hundred years from now that he predicted he said people won't talk about e-commerce as being the you know or some particular, they won't be talking about Amazon. They won't be talking about one particular company. He said, what changed is, is that for the first time, 
really in history, the, the masses had choices. And he adds this point that, you know, that society is totally unprepared for it. And I think that's right. I think he's right about that, that the, the, the individual with this, all of this choice now, for many people, they're not prepared for this. They don't know what they want any clearer than they did before. So now they just have, you know, it's like going to some crazy buffet and you don't actually know what you want or what you like. And so you're just kind of overwhelmed by it all. And so the, the future belongs to the people who get more intentional about it, more strategic. And they say, okay, I've got all these tools. What do I want to do? What am I, what's essential to me? Let's, let's go after it and create it. And, and to go even a step further than that, once you get clear about what's essential to you and what's not, so you can leave all that clutter around, you then say, I'm going to use these tools to create systems that make executing what matters most to me as easy and as effortless as possible. That's what these tools enable, but they only work that way if they work for you rather than you working for them. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. That's a great answer. And I think this kind of brings us to giving people some action steps around the idea and, and kind of the process of being able to find what is essential to them. I know you talk about the three-step process uh, that you have explore, eliminate, execute. Can you go into a little bit of an overview of what that process is like for people that are trying to find what is essential for them? Yeah, I mean, you know, what what would you can use the metaphor of the closet, right? The um, uh, if you if you're like most people, your closet over time just gets more and more cluttered. Uh, to the point that for a lot of people, actually, like, they, they, you know, they, they might have quite a lot in their closet, but they don't wear much of it. It's not very useful to them. They have it becomes very messy. There's a lot of stuff even on the floor and all over. It's just that's like the undisciplined pursuit of more. There's tons of stuff coming in, uh, but you're not going through it. You haven't built systems that enable you to reflect on, you know, which clothes you even want to have in there. And so the three steps that you're referring to is to explore what does that look like? You know, well, that's like, you know, the closet staying with that metaphor. You take everything out of the closet. You're going to be able to look at it all. Instead of just looking at one item, you know, here and there, you look at everything together. You put it all on the bed in one item at a time before you put anything back in. You say, look, is this essential? Is this, is, do I love this? Do I wear this often? Um, do I look great in it? you know, Marie Kondo, does it spark joy? You know, you're asking very selective questions so that only the essential things go back in. So you're first exploring what's essential. You're using selective criteria. Second, you're saying, okay, well, all the other stuff, I'm actually going to eliminate it. I'm not just going to put all of that back in the closet in a slightly more organized way. It's like, no, I don't even want that. That doesn't fit me anymore. I don't like it. I never wear it. It's not useful. And so you remove it completely. But then that's not enough. Like that's step one and two. It sounds like enough, but that's just like to get a one-time result. But what you need, what we want is a, is a way to execute this on an ongoing basis. You need a routine. You need a, uh, you know, every day a practice that you'd go through. Uh, someone could, um, you, 
just to illustrate the point, you could say, okay, well, I'm going to hire someone that does this every, every year sits with me and coaches me through it. Or like, there's all sorts of systems you could build so that this just perpetually happens now that you just have the things you love and the things that you, that really look great. This is all a metaphor. Essentialism is explore what's essential. So you're saying in your life, what is it that you want to be focused on? Maybe you say, okay, every day, um, I'm going to answer the question, what's, this, what's the most important thing I need to do today? Like, what, what's important now? Win. Do you want to win the day? What's important now? And you choose your highest priority for the day. And, and that doesn't mean you only do one thing, but it gives you some orientation in the world. You say, okay, that's what I'm, my target is. I'm not trying to do everything. And then you are trying to eliminate some of the other tasks on your list. Actually make a trade-off and you say, no, I, these things, they're good, but I'm not going to do them right now. They don't, they're not the most important things. I'll leave those for later in my life or I'll leave those till next week. Uh, or you eliminate them altogether. You just say, no, I'm not doing that. That just because other people are doing it doesn't mean I have to. Just because other people are on that social media platform doesn't mean I have to invest in it. There's too many platforms. I don't have to do them all just because everyone else seems to be. I'm not going to let FOMO guide my life. Uh, and, and then, and then once you start to identify, get clearer about like, this is the stuff I'm feeling pulled towards. This is the stuff that's a clear yes for me. Then you start designing your life around it. Uh, and, and, and there's a variety of things that we can do to make it so that you will actually fulfill that essential mission. Yeah. I think the last part for me is always a good reminder because it is similar to a garden and the grass growing in your lawn where you can trim it once and it looks great for a little while, but eventually it'll come back. It'll grow back. You're going to have to pick out the thorns. You're going to have to really attend to make sure that the garden is, you know, not growing in certain places and that it's not out of order. Uh, that seems to be like the maintenance part seems to be what I personally struggle with and what I've seen a lot of people struggle with as well. So I'm really glad you were able to bring that up and, and really accentuate that. Now, returning kind of back to the first point, because as you mentioned, the, the clothing and the closet is a, is a really great analogy. But I think for people that are in work or entrepreneurs and whether it's tasks or projects that they're trying to juggle around, because of the fact, you know, as you mentioned, that it's so easy to start a business or so easy to start a project with Shopify and all these other companies, people just don't know, really know where to start. So have you, maybe for your personal stories of what projects you take or what clients you work with or what books you write, are there any mental frameworks, systems, or questions that you ask that allows you to get more clarity on what is exactly the right thing to work on that could have the highest amount of impact? Are there anything specifically that has helped you or any, anyone that you've helped? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a variety of things people can do, but, but one of them is to, is to create space just to reflect on that. You, mm. a lot of people are so busy reacting to the social media, to the latest email, to the, you know, whatever the distraction is, uh, that they just don't, aren't, aren't spending any time on this. So it's not like it's a conceptual problem. It's not like people say, oh, I can't understand prioritization. Yeah. No, they understand what it is in 10 seconds, but they don't have a system in place for doing it. 
So they just don't, they just wake up, wake up in the morning. I did a, um, I did a few shows with Steve Harvey and one of the, one of the people from his audience that I worked with, um, I went to her house and I'm like sort of looking at how she's living her life and her family dynamics and so on. And, and as we, as we were with the camera crew and we're going around her house and, and it goes to her bedroom and, and I'm like, okay, well tell me, you know, where, 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 like, where's your phone in here? Where do you, and she, she said, Oh, well, I just sleep with my phone under my pillow. Um, sorry about that. Uh, and, uh, like under her pillow, that means that what she's saying is that if she gets an email in the middle of the night, she wakes up to check her email. If she gets a text in the middle of the night, she'll wake up, respond to them and go back to sleep. And when I share that with people with live groups in, in, in keynote events that I, that, that I run, people gasp. It's like, oh, but it's like a self-righteous gasp. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine doing that? Putting that under your pillow. That's just wild. And, and in a sense they're right. But I always think it's funny because I'm like, we have a, where do you all keep your phones? Right. You know, a, a healthy 10 inches from that, their ear. You know, they, they, most people put it on their, on their night, nightstand. The last thing they do at night is the first thing they do in the morning. There's no space to think, to ponder what's essential to me. What goals do I really want to pursue? What did I come on this earth to do? What do I want to achieve today, this week, this month, this year, this decade? People just don't get clear on it. And it's not that they can't. It's just that they aren't spending cycles on it. And mm -hmm. so, so I think just even scheduling that and just recognizing, my goodness, I have a competitive advantage if I just spend time daily, weekly, quarterly thinking about this. What goals am I most proud of having achieved? What things would really represent like exciting, great opportunities that feel like the right direction for me? I mean, even these quite simple, quite vanilla questions give you tremendous advantage because other people aren't clear. They're just looking at each other reactively. They're just looking at social media reactively. And so they're getting pulled off track because they aren't spending any time figuring out what the track is. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of low hanging fruit available. If somebody will even start doing what, what I just described. If someone's looking for a little higher, you know, higher practice, um, something that I recommend to people is positive prioritization. Uh, so this is once a week is a practice that I uh, participate in uh, most weeks where I'll list what I'm most grateful for from the week. Uh, mm -hmm. And as I'm doing that, there's, there's the, the science behind this is quite strong that you get a bigger return on your investment. If you list things you're grateful for weekly than even if you do them daily, um, as it happens, I do that, both, I but, uh, but, but it's, um, what was that? Sorry. Why is it you think there's a greater? Uh, I think it's, well, I mean, the, 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 I think the reason is because you get to see with greater perspective. So you can, what you can achieve in a week is so much more than you can achieve in a day. And so when you get a little perspective and you say, wow, you know, those things added up, you know, I have actually made some real progress. Um, and, and so you, you get to see more gains than you can in a day. Uh, so, so sort of step one in the weekly process, get really clear about your top, maybe let's say top five things you're grateful for from the week, uh, things, results that you're like, you know, those that mattered. And then instead of just leaving it as a gratitude exercise, you say, okay, well, what would the next achievement be? 
what, what, what could I achieve in the next week that I would be like proud of it? The, and if I, if, if I got there on each of these items so that you're building on the momentum you already have. So, so this is positive prioritization. You're turning the positivity from the gratitude into a prioritization list for the next week, but it's connected to what you're already making progress on because you really want to be focusing on what's going right and building on what's going right when it comes to prioritization um, and not get distracted by, oh, well, this person's achieving this other thing over here, so I should change my strategy and rush after and race after what they're doing over there. It's like that might have nothing whatsoever to do with what's going right for you and what momentum and competence you're building. And so you want to be building on top of the thing that's going right. I mean, th that's a practice that I do weekly, as I say, most of the time, and I also do it every six months. I love that exercise. That's one of the most important parts of prioritization for me. You get six months of pr perspective. You know, you can achieve a lot in six months. You can really, and when you review it, you can feel very proud of like, wow, we've made progress on all these things. It's like we're in a different place than we were six months ago. Uh, and so then to build on that to say, okay, well, what would the next level success look like within each of these areas? Mm. Uh, I find this to be a very helpful orienting process. Um, and, and again, it, it's, uh, I, I, I feel like it's a little higher, uh, higher level, you know, higher standard um, for, for, you know, for making progress. And are you using some sort of a journal to keep track of all of these thoughts together, including the things that you're thinking about during the blank times and also the positive prioritization? Yeah, I do. I, I, about 10 and a half years ago, I'd been quite intermittent in journal keeping, um, up to 10 and a half years ago. And, and I, w I, I read about, um, someone, a, a church leader, um, um, Henry, uh, B. Eyring, who's a leader in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he said something, I was watching a video and he said something like, uh, I started writing a few sentences every night, no matter how late I was going to bed, no matter how early I was getting up the next morning, I just write a few sentences. I did that for years. And I remember hearing that and thinking, man, if, with all the leadership responsibilities he has, this global responsibilities and, and family and everything, if he can do this, then I can too. But there was a little more, I mean, there was a commitment there and an inspirational element to that, but there was a bit more to it, which is, it was like, it became an upper bound for me. This is something I explore in the new book in Effortless is by having an upper bound of let's say five sentences a day and a lower bound of not less than, you know, not less than one sentence a day. You've now created a system that's much more likely to be sustainable. So instead of intermittently writing three pages and then you don't write anything for weeks and months, you say, okay, well, you know, how hard is it? It's easy. You can write five sentences. Oh, I'm really tired. Yeah, but it's just like, if you're so tired, just do one sentence. It's all right. One sentence is good. And so I started with that inspiration, but that those important rules in place. I don't think I've missed a day now in 10 and a half years. Wow. So I have like a whole, I mean, I, now I write much more than a, a sentence a day. Um, more than five sentences become such a habit. I carry my journal with me literally everywhere I go when I travel everything. And so it's where I, you know, my first zero draft of any book I'm writing goes in there. I'm just capturing ideas as I go. 
uh, the gratitude list daily, weekly, quarterly, it's all in there. Uh, and I've got like, uh, you know, you know, I go through about four journals a year now, uh, pretty consistently. And that's sort of the, to me, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a bit meta now using that as an example, because it's, 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 it is how I prioritize and so on, but it's also an example of effortless execution. You don't want to go big on anything you're doing. In my opinion, you don't want to just so go so big at the beginning that you can't maintain the effort. You want a sustainable pace an effortless pace if you can achieve it. And one way to do that is to have an upper bound to any goal you set. Uh, true for, true for keeping the journal true for the what's essential podcast. Right. I, I got told, I don't know if it's true, but another podcaster shared with me, they said 90% of podcasters or of podcasts, I should say, um, like don't get more than three episodes done. So by episode four, 90% are done. They're like, Oh, I kind of got excited about it. I started, I got the equipment. I tried it out. You know, no one really listened, whatever. And they're just out. They're done. This is so true, by the way. And then, so true. And then they said of the, of the 10% that remains, 90% don't make it through to episode 21. So it means that if you want to be a successful podcaster, one of the, probably the single most successful thing you can do from a competitive advantage point of view is just to be, is just to still be doing it at episode 21. There's like the vast majority of your competitors died before they got there. Mm. so pacing success it just doesn't it doesn't make for great news articles you know and amazing sean and greg they they are still here on episode 21 <laughs> like no one writes an article about that but but the fact is is that that actually is is your best chance of of beating your competitors is just to still be in the game yeah. you want to write you want to write a journal for the rest of your life you just make it sustainable you want the, the podcast right my podcast, I haven't done anything fancy with it. I haven't got some massive platform to build it. We just started. We just had the courage to be rubbish. We said, we'll just do one every day, every week, no matter what. We're just going to go learn as we go. Uh, it was about a year ago, and it's now top five uh, in education um, wow. and, and self-improvement. And, and we just keep plotting. You know, like I'm, I'm in it. I'll be in it a year from now too. We're just going to keep going and it grows and it becomes something. Uh, and people want results fast. They're impatient about it. And, and so they give up before they barely begun. You want mm. a sustainable pace so that you can have sustainable success. Yeah. That, that might be one of the greatest advice for people that are really trying to accomplish anything, anything. in this fast paced you know, fast expect people with people that are expecting fast results. It is often your greatest competitive advantage. And the podcast is definitely one of the best examples of that. Cause that's like proven by data. Yeah. That this is the case. And it, it reminds me of this, uh, I forgot which book it was, but it was around habit building, which is if you want to start flossing, you can just literally start with flossing one tooth. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's the idea of like getting in the door. BJ Fogg is, is tiny habits. And I love yes. BJ. And, and that's exactly what he says. It's, it's the tiny habits. You just go smaller than you think mm. would make any difference. But tiny, floss one tooth. Oh, you go, as soon as you hear that, you're like, okay, I can do one tooth. You know, you can do one tooth. We well, have yeah, the power of it. You do one tooth every day for a year. Yeah. By the end of that year, you would flossing all your teeth. 
right? Like yeah. you're going to get there. Once you're there, you end up doing a little more. Uh, and so, yes, it's by small and simple mechanisms, the great things happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and and you, what we're looking for, that it really is kind of part of the value proposition for, for effortless is how can you design your routines and your systems and your approaches to make it easier to do what matters most so that you can keep doing it mm. so that you don't give up and get burned out and worn out. The most amazing story of, of, you know, <laughs> of these, um, this is before the space age, but it's in the great age of exploration no one had ever gone to the South Pole ever in the history of recorded history. Like I'm talking like not for not, not Pythias in a, you know, 320 BCE. He never went there and he was traveling all around the world. Uh, not, not the, not the Norwegian Vikings for a thousand years, not the British empire. No one had ever done it. And it captured people's imagination. We're going to get to the South Pole and two teams go at it, right? You can read about it in the, in the rival, um, the, the rivals for the poles, one is a British team, one is the Norwegian team, the last Viking he was called. The British team, basically, they just pushed every day that was good weather, they went as fast and as hard as they could. On bad weather days, they were so exhausted, they would just hunker down in the tents and just complain. Uh, oh, we got such bad weather. No one has been so unlucky as we are. And um, they were wrong about that. They, they didn't have worse weather uh, than anybody else. Um, they had slightly better weather than their predecessors, in fact, but they felt that they did because of their approach. The Norwegian team set a goal, upper limit, no more than 15 miles per day. No, really, no less than 15. So sometimes a little less. On a very bad weather day in the journal, we, you know, horrific weather, we made 13 miles progress. And the plot thickens that they're, they're 45 miles from the South Pole. They don't know whether the competitor team from Britain is. They could be ahead of them, and they have perfect weather conditions. So they know now they have 45 miles. They could make it in one day with one big push. Okay, forget the rule from before. Now we're going to break the rule. We're going to go. No, they took three days, averaging 15 miles for the last three days. They made it there. But they didn't just make it there. They beat the competitor team by 32 days, but also they were in good mental, physical, healthy shape, healthy enough to get out from the South Pole and back to – Norway. It's a huge, it's itself a massive journey. The British team arrive there late, they're discouraged, they're exhausted, and they die, all of them, none of them make it back to Britain. So this completely contrasting approaches to success. The, one of the biographers said of the Norwegian team, and I think this is just shocking, and it, it, it should shake everybody to rethink their view of success, I think. Because he said, they achieved their goal of getting to the South Pole, here's his phrase, without particular effort. <laughs> That's, that shocked me when I read it. That really like grabbed my attention. Obviously, because I'm into the idea of effortless, like effortless power rather than powerless yeah. effort. I find that a fascinating idea, but how is it possible? How is it thinkable that the, one of the most arduous physical challenges known on planet Earth at that time could be described as without particular effort? Now, I don't want to overdo the point he's making. Of course, it took effort, but he's saying that wasn't the primary criteria of the trip. It was steadiness. It was an effortless pace. It was maintaining the pace that actually gave them the tremendous 
competitive advantage. This is not what you're going to read about in Fortune magazine, right? You're not going to hear this in the, in the front page of Inc. magazine. That's not, it doesn't make for a heroic story. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, it's actually what explains most of the success and particularly people that su- sustain success and are successful at success is that they find a pace and they do it day in and day out. And what you're going to find as soon as people get into this my, new mental mindset, this paradigm, is you're going to notice it everywhere. You're going to find that high performers do what I'm describing, uh, that, that, um, that, that the elite don't burn themselves out and crash and boom and bust their way to success. They're actually steady, calm, get on with it, don't overdo it, people. They just don't get, it's just, just doesn't make for great stories. That's it. So we, we underestimate all that data. Uh, and the good news is that it means it's within your reach and my reach and everyone listening to this, it's within their reach too. Just don't go too big. Stay steady. Keep your eye on something that's a tremendous goal for you beyond your current abilities and just steadily work on it day in and day out. You will, you will, you will, you will beat your competitors because you're still at it when other people have given up long after they've given up. Yeah. And I really hope that last part is something that people listen to again, because it's the most unsexy advice and you're right. It's not going to be talked about in the media unless you have an eye for it, like you did and you're looking for that information, but it's never going to be, they're going to be talking about the Brits that went full out the crazy stories and the weather they've endured and the fact that they've, you know, they've died along the journey and how heroic it was. It's mm-hmm. not going to be about the Norwegians. And I think it's so applicable for just trying to, for people that are trying to spot out the competitive advantage, like that's it, you know, it's just the steadiness. Um, I, I want to dig into a little bit about how you schedule your day. And for people that are trying to figure out the, maybe the key important task, is there an ideal amount uh, on, I got I got to plug in here. Give me a second. Oh, yeah, go for it. You can, you yeah, can yeah, edit yeah. this, right? Yeah, yeah, we can edit that out. Okay, go ahead. The question for me is? Yeah, so for, for the people that are trying to find their ideal day and trying to schedule the right amount, not overdoing it. You know, we yep. have the people that have 14 different colors in their schedules. You know, for you and for people that are that you've seen as patterns to be most effective, what are kind of the ways of structuring your day? Maybe it's the number of tasks or it's the fact that you have certain blocks of time for certain things and the number of blocks so that you can at least feel some sort of minimal structure. What are some general advice for people that are trying to structure the days? Um, I, I would recommend at least two that I think have the power of relevancy right now, year and a half ish into this pandemic and all the effects of that and so on is the boundaries disappeared. There weren't many boundaries before, but any boundaries we had between work, life, family, health, and all of it, it just, it just, the, the, the final boundaries left. And the cost of that is that like for a lot of people, their day became a sort of endless zoom, eat, sleep, repeat life. They're looking at their Fitbit at the end of the day and it says 300 steps. Uh, they can barely even tell you what day it is, you know, like weekends become the same as weekdays. You're getting as many emails on a Saturday and Sunday now as you used to do through the week. Like it just, it just, 
And that, the problem with all of that is that isn't how top performers behave. If you, you like, and the reason they don't behave that way is because like humans don't thrive that way. Uh, we, we are cyclical creatures. We're rhythmic creatures. Uh, and so you need, um, you, you need periods of steady work, but you also need recuperation. And that's back to the Norwegian team actually, right? Is that, okay, we're going to go, we're going to do our thing, but we're going to rest each day and we're going to have a, a, a steady approach. Um, uh, so again, specific, I would recommend that people start writing a done for the day list. Mm. Because if you're an overachiever, your to-do list gets longer by the end of the day than it is at the beginning. And not just like once every, not just every so often, like that's pretty much every single day. So the longer you live, the longer the list of undone things is going to be for you. Now, that's an okay problem to have as long as you sort of separate it and go, well, that's my kind of just my general big list of ideas and possibilities. And as I learn more, I'll grow more ideas and put them in there to select from. That's fine. But a lot of people don't have it distinguished like that. So they just feel more and more frustrated as, as they get to the end of the day. Oh, I've been doing all this stuff, but look at all the stuff I didn't get done. Well, yeah, of course. That's, you got more stuff now than you did when you woke up. So... What I would recommend, you have a done for the day list. You set, it takes, it takes a little time to work on this. It's like a prioritization process because you have to think, you have to think, (laughs) (laughs) what do I want to get done? What actually matters to me? What would I feel satisfied with? So I could say, yeah, I'm okay with being done now because these important things happened. Now I can relax and actually have that recuperation. So that would be one thing I would recommend. Second, is I would recommend second boundary is to have a time that you're done for the day. Uh, so, so that would be different for different people, different circumstances. I'm married. Uh, we, Anna and I have four children. Uh, you know, we've lived through this pandemic like everybody else has. I found a little self-awareness that I needed to be done at 5 PM, right? Like I, I need to walk out of my office so that I can be around everyone you know, help gather people together, help organize if there's things that need to be done for dinner. If there's, you know, like I need to do that before I'm fatigued. Because if I could turn out, you see, if you don't have a done for a time to be done, then there's no natural end. Six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. Like there's no no time. You just keep going until you're so exhausted, you can't carry on. And then you sleep for a bit and, and, and so on. So time to be done. I, I was like a town crier. I would walk for accountability. I would get out of my office and I would yell to the whole house what time it was. It is five o'clock, you know, whatever time it was to hold myself accountable. The third specific strategy I would recommend, right, you know, for people to, to, to find that sustainable effortless pace is, is to don't use more energy today than you can recuperate today. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, and, and I'll use a second example too, a second rule. Don't use more energy this week than you can recuperate this week. So th- those are slightly different, and they're, because, they're there because, of course, occasionally you will, right? Occasionally you'll say, okay, I'm just going to push it on this project. There's a deadline due. There's an exam due. There's a, there's a project for a key client due. There's a 
whatever, and you push yourself a bit more than you really have stamina for consistently. Like if you worked at that pace for 10 years, you couldn't do it. Mm. Or even for a, a month, you couldn't do it. So some days you will do that, but I'm challenging people to do that as rarely as possible. What you want is to go, okay, what's the maximum I could do in a healthy way, right? And then you go a little bit back from that. And you say, okay, that's my sustainable pace. That's what I can do over time so that I can still be in this game a year from now and 10 years from now and 20 years from now. Like I love to teach and write. That's what I want to do. Like I 20 years ago quit law school to pursue what I really want to do, right? You know, teaching and writing. I've done it now for 20 years. Uh, I want to be doing it in 20 years from now. And, and I, I, it's, 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 so I want to be able to find that pace where I go, yeah, if I maintain this right, like I don't overdo it today and overdo it this week so I can keep on being in the game again and again, do the next book, do the next event, do the next class. Mm-hmm. You, 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 so that you're, you know, you're, it's before you get to diminishing returns and long before you get to negative returns. So just to define those for a second, right? So, so diminishing returns is that for every extra unit of effort I put in, I'm getting less back, right? So it's, it's the diminishing returns. I'm still getting a return for my effort, but it's less than the first unit of effort I put in. Right. The negative returns are, are, are much worse because that's for every unit of effort I put in, I'm getting a worse result than if I hadn't put the effort in at all. Like, for example, when I was writing effortless, if I wrote, I mean, everyone has different ways of writing. And I myself have had tried all different kinds. But I found for this, that if I wrote more than three hours of really focused work, uh, then I would reach diminishing returns. You know, like if I started, if I did a fourth hour, I could get some advantage out of a fourth hour, but it would not be as much as I'd got an hour one, two or three. See, Mm. now if I go six, seven, eight hours of trying to do intense mental work, I'm so fatigued that my work will be less like my manuscript will be worse than if I stopped writing. Cause now yeah. I'm going, Oh, I've got this great idea. I'm in hour, I'm in hour seven. Great idea. I've got to redo this whole book. And I would do that sometimes. Oh, I got to change all the parts and Oh, this will be so good. And actually I'm making it all worse. My judgment's impaired and I'm also fatiguing tomorrow. So that the next day when you get up to work, you're like actually pretty tired out because you overdid it the night before. So it's knowing it's some self-awareness, some trial and error, but you get to a point where you say, okay, for me, it's two or three hours. If I work two or three hours of focused writing time, that's what I can do on writing. I can do other activities after that, but not more writing. It's suboptimal to do more. Yeah. And I, I can point to many very successful writers. There's one writer who's written many, ghost written many uh, uh best-selling books. I don't use ghost writers, but, but the, 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 I know this individual and his whole mantra, I learned about from Tim Ferriss. His whole mantra is a two, two average pages a day. I think average page, maybe even say two rubbish pages a day. Something like that hmm. is his target. It's just like two, two rubbish pages, something like that. Two rubbish pages a day is super fast. And most people who think of writing, they're like, oh, you'd have to write 10, 20, 30 pages a day. You know, that's what writers must do. Well, no one does that. Uh, not most do anyway. Very rare that you have writers that really put out a lot of quality in a short period of time. 
Sure. Yeah. And and I've heard similar things about the process of writing code for people and maybe for some people it's designing or other, yeah, other I, aspects that revolves creativity. And I just want one point to add on to the schedule that you have of putting that limitation, you know, ending at five and having yep. that limit of time that you're in. I, I think I'm certainly you're familiar with it, but for people that are listening, I highly recommend people to check out Parkinson's law, which is that the, the time that you've allotted um, is the time that you'll fill essentially, meaning that if you take three hours or four hours for a 30 minute task, you're going to take three to four hours. And it's just the way our psychology is mined up. So the, the fact that you have that limited time is, is serving for you to be as productive as possible. Um, Greg, I, I, I want to actually to shift little gears from the daily tasks and the daily schedules to a little bit more higher level. Um, I think there is information around what people do on a consistent annual basis to really get their creative juices going. It's, it's, it's called a, a think week, which has kind of been popularized by Bill Gates. I think where people take what a week or maybe sometimes two weeks off, go in the middle of nowhere, read and just think and journal. Um, so I think there's a lot of information already out there. And I think, the other side of that, uh, from a daily perspective, people have talked about like polyphasic sleeping and stuff like that. There's a lot of information like that out there. Uh, what I'm curious to know for, for you, whether you've experimented with it or you've researched or maybe even have uh, clients that have used this is how they structure their week. And there are other aspects of people, you know, people talk about now the four day work week where you go from Monday to Thursday and you can recuperate for those three days just because of the remote work nature that we're in. There's less commuting. So people are saving more time and people have talked about that. I think other people like Jack Dorsey talk about themes and making each day uh, maybe for, for him, it's Twitter one day, square one day, or it's design one day, product one day. What have you found to be interesting examples that have worked for you or maybe some other people? knowing that it's going to be a personal thing at the end of the day, but what are some inspirations or ideas that you think just based on where work culture is going that you think would be effective? Well, I mean, there's this, you know, there's as many strategies for scheduling as there are people, right? I mean, you're, you're looking to experiment with trying to make, trying to make the the work that you think is essential as routine as possible. Yeah. Um, so, so I've got, I've got two ideas in my head in, in answering this. One is cause you mentioned Bill Gates and it got me thinking about that, 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 that when Bill Gates was CEO of Microsoft um, and he was first introduced to Warren Buffett, they had this conversation about scheduling mm. and, and, you know, they're both CEOs of major companies You're dealing with, you know, huge financial decisions constantly. Um, and Warren Buffett shows Bill Gates his schedule, which was in a paper calendar in his pocket. And he pulls it out. And the only thing on his schedule for that week was getting his haircut. <laughs> right. Now, this is one of the most successful investors in history. Right. Uh, certainly modern history with one appointment on his calendar. So what does that say? I mean, of course that doesn't mean he's lazy, right? We, we, that, that would be a, uh, a poor conclusion, 
but what does it speak to the systems he has designed and built so that he can achieve as much as he's achieving without filling his schedule back to back in 10 minute increments. You know, you could imagine someone justifying an, an absolutely relentless life of almost no freedom at all in his situation and easily justifying it. And everyone else around them wouldn't saying, well, yes, of course. I mean, if you're that successful investor, you must have to design your life that way as if that's the only way to go. And he's like, no, I, that is not at all how I want to design my life. That is not how I've designed my business. He's been so much smarter and more thoughtful about it. In fact, he himself, now that we're on, we're on Buffett, for example, he, he said, um, um, he says, our, our investment strategy borders on lethargy. Like that's not what you expect to hear from the most successful investor, especially when you think about what the typical investor culture looks like and sounds like and feels like. It's the polar opposite to that. But his is, he, he's just approached this in such a different way. I mean, one of the things that enables that schedule is that he, he doesn't believe in investing in companies that he has to go and try and fix and tell managers what to do. He wants to hire managers that are the best in the world. Not only that they tell him what to do, they just get on and manage and lead their businesses. So what he's looking for is people that he can trust like the highest trust people he can possibly get. Now, this doesn't sound at first like this is a, a route, a, a calendaring solution, does it? Because when you hear calendaring, you think, well, how many things can we have on the calendar? Which things do you do which day? But his goal is like, I don't want anything on my calendar. I want to maximize the space on my calendar so I can think and make better choices in the future. So I'm not controlled by the businesses that I'm investing in. But what he, what, so, so he hires, he, he wants to not hire, invest in the highest trust people possible. He has criteria for it. Um, this is in, is in the chapter on trust in Effortless. Uh, I outlined this. Uh, people who, um, high integrity, high intelligence, high initiative. The three I's. Integrity, intelligence, initiative. And then he says, we hire high trust people and we trust them completely. And that's the thing. You make a fool's bargain if you hire people you don't really trust, because then you have to spend your whole life managing and micromanaging and trying to control and trying to hover and all the rest of it. If you hire the right people, you don't have to do that. You trust them completely. So let me give an illustration of this from Buffett's life that I find really amazing. I mean, talk about a difference between the hustle, exhausting mindset that we've been sold and then how he approached this. So this is, they're, they're going to buy a, I think it's a $23 billion company. Um, uh, McLean Industries uh, from, uh, who's, who's owned at the time by Walmart. And just imagine how much work you would expect to put into such a, 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 an event. You know, how, how much money would you spend in legal fees alone? Imagine six months, a whole team of people, 
You can imagine just the due diligence, millions of dollars. Check every single contract. You've got to check every number that they say is actually correct, what they're saying it is, and all the rest of it. Which is why it's so breathtaking what actually happened, which is he said it was a two-hour meeting and a handshake. Wow. Yeah. That's effortless. That's what it looks like. That's an example of what it looks like. That, in comparison, is effortless. How is it done? How did he do that? Because he said, we knew that Walmart would have exactly everything as they said it would be, and it was. Mm. Because he works with the people he trusts and then trusts them completely. And that's, the, that's a different orientation. Now, you might put a little more effort up front or be more selective. You have to be more essentialist in your criteria. You're not just looking for, hey, who can, I'm going to buy anything. I'm going to go after anyone. I'm going I'm to hire someone to work with me. Anyone will do. Just get somebody in place. Uh, you can do it that way, but then, you just, then you, you've made 100 future problems yours. Or you take a little more effort to get the right person in place, and then they, they tell you what to do. They do things without you asking them to do things. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a different orientation. So I would just advocate, you know, what I aspire to myself is to have as, I want as few things as possible on the calendar. I want as much space as possible. Um, I haven't done a super great job on that recently, but my wife Anna has helped recently to try and put buffer into the schedule and have a whole, have a whole Wednesday. No, you're not doing any appointments. This is, this is thinking time. This is writing time. After I finished effortless, she said, no, let's not make it, have you do all the appointments that you've been missing uh, for as you've been getting this finished, have two weeks to think. Uh, and she's just dead right, right? That she's the one that's being smart about this. So to me, that's what I would hold up as an ideal. How can you create systems that relieve the pressure to have you do the stuff on the calendar at all? That's really the ideal for the entrepreneur. You want freedom. You want space. You want to think. You want to be able to maximize the number of days you aren't even working on in the business. Uh, and, and that's maybe different, as I say, to what most people would here or most people would say, but I, I think it's, it's worth, it's worth, you know, really considering. Yeah. And that just to add on to that point, Greg, it's, it's, I think that idea that you mentioned around hiring and, and bringing other people to help you is such a key point, especially what you brought about your wife as well is sometimes people we're just in our own way, right? We can have the right information that we need to schedule this, but there are certain hard wirings in our brains or just, our own uncontrollability that makes us get in our own way. And we eventually falter to kind of these vulnerabilities that we have of trying to find opportunities. And as you mentioned, sometimes it's just getting an assistant or someone that you trust to step in and to make sure that they're guiding you in the right way and not just relying on your own uh, all the time to, to do it for you. And it could just be hiring a virtual assistant or it could be, you know, finding the right friend or person to, to kind of guide you along the way as well. One of my um, favorite, one of my very favorite stories in the research for effortless was, was of a friend of mine, a social entrepreneur, uh, who went to Africa. It's Jessica Jackley. And she went to Africa. She wanted to try and make a difference there. And she found an entrepreneur there who was, who was the system in her life was subsistence system. Uh, this is a linear result. A linear result is where you put, you put, you only get paid if you do the work effort right now. 
So for her, what that looked like was the ultimate example of this because she's on the, you know, she's selling produce on the side of the road. Any day she doesn't sell, she doesn't get paid and her children don't eat. So it's like really extreme example of linear result. Uh, so Jessica gets involved and the people that she's with get involved and they say, okay, well, what would it take to create a system that results were at least flowed a little easier to her, like a little more like a residual result so that if she didn't work today, she could still get some kind of result, so that she wouldn't just have to be in this quite awful situation of dependency. And they found that $500 investment would make the difference for her. So it's quite a modest investment, but it would allow her to have enough time off to make uh, arrangements with the fisheries and with the farmers so that she could have produce delivered so that she doesn't dependent on a middleman and that she could have a bit more profit in the system, which will allow her to get ahead, be able to start working on her business rather than just always in it surviving. And so that that's like sort of level one system intervention, that $500. And then they think they get a little smarter about it and they think, well, well what if we did it as a loan? That would be like level two it, system intervention, because that would allow us to help her, but then the money would come back and we'd be able to help a second person, a third, a tenth. So that might allow us to have a 10x influence, same amount of money, but we have 10x impact. But then they went like level three system intervention. They said, well, hold on. What if we created a system, a platform that would enable lots of people to be able to make these small, relatively small investments, microloans to other people. And that's how Kiva.org was born. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you either have a $500 investment. They could have done that, right? That's, that's like a linear effort. You do one time, you give the $500, help them or a loan, $500 loan. Well, that's, as they say, 10 X or what about a thousand X? Kiva has now given $1.3 billion in loans. Mm. That's, that's way, way beyond a thousand X. People think I'm exaggerating when we start talking about residual results, having a thousand X benefits. But what else can you call it when it's $1.3 billion versus $500? Uh, and with a 97% repayment of those loans. That's, like, that's extraordinary, right? That's just going to go on and on. That system will continue to, to help people for, you know, for a generation or longer. That's, I think, as an entrepreneur, even if somebody listening to this goes, well, that's a million miles from where I am right now, and it might be. You know, like they, they go, I've got to do a whole bunch of stuff before that can become my reality. The thought alone will help you design your business differently. You want to create systems that work when you're not working. You want to create systems that are completely independent of you. I sometimes use the death test for this for entrepreneurs. Like if you die today, can your business work without you? If you can't be gone for one day from your business without it dying, you've built a system that's completely residual. I mean, completely linear. It just is dependent yeah. on you entirely. And it's not optimal for anyone involved, including you. you. You want it so that you could take off, like Derek Sivers told me, he took off six months from his business at one right. point. Uh, that's, he's, he built a business that was, that, that was residual in nature, but just kept on working whether he was working or not. That's what we're talking about. It doesn't mean he's lazy. <laughs> It means that he's created systems that are smart and effortless so that he can use his effort to build something else, to do something else, to grow something else, to contribute something else.
Got it. Got it. And I think you mentioned there was another part that you were, you were mentioning around this idea of scheduling the, the work weeks and the different ideas. Was, was there something else that you, you had in mm. mind? Or? Yeah. <laughs> we delved right. pretty we deep about, into We talked about the Bill, the Bill Gates thing. The Bill Gates, uh, Warren Buffett, hiring someone else. Yeah, I don't remember now. It's lost. It's no lost into the, into the... I know, we went super deep in this one topic. <laughs> the last question I had for you, Greg, just speaking around this idea of finding the right system and the right multiplier, you know, is there anything that you can reflect back into, whether it's your career, your life, your productivity in general, that could be helpful for people that you could think of that has been one of the biggest multipliers for you? Um, yeah, I mean, let me, let me say, um, I mean, I'll say, I will say networking, uh, but I will say that in two ways. Like I've, I've had kind of amazingly, almost miraculously opportunity to just talk to and, and meet so many interesting people in my life. Right. Like from 20 years ago, when I first quit law, school to, to teach and write, I set as an intention, okay, I want to go speak to other best-selling authors, uh, not others, just best-selling authors, learn what they did and so on. And just ways were open where there seemed to be no way that is part of networking. Um, and, and I would say that that has been extremely valuable, um, accelerated learning, accelerated understanding. But I will also say that, that relatively recently, I've realized how limited that approach has been um, and how, how necessary it has been to, to, to turn networking into its own system so that instead of it just being a sort of um, connection that you're making, hey, you've got to know somebody, got to meet them, talk to them, learn something, and it's, it's one time and it's done, saying, how do I serve these? How do I serve people with the network perpetually? How do I have a system that helps to automate a service orientation? You don't want to serve the people in your network when you happen to think about it. That's a, that's a great way. Um, you know, that's a great way to, to, to end up uh, showing up when you need something only. Right. And that's what most people do in their network is that they show up when they want something from someone. Hey, I was thinking about you. How are you? Can you help me with this? You know, and that's okay, but people definitely going to know whether you're interested in mutual exchange of value or whether you're even wanting just genuinely to serve. It's going to make a big difference. And so I've begun investing in that as a system and saying like all these amazing people that I've got to know. It's, it's almost overwhelming actually to try and just even collect all of that and just to put that in a, in a system so that I, can, if, if, you, if you're trying to manage through texting, you're going to have a relationship with 10, 20, 30 people, maybe max 50. I don't know. It's not in terms of staying in touch with people. But if you build the right system, you can maybe have a thousand people that are really like people that you care about and you're not contacting them all the time, but every so often you check in with them. How are they doing? How can you serve them? Who can you introduce them to? And you're in a service orientation. And, and, and then that, 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 that is a huge game changer. I would say that I, I've learned... Um, you know, if I learned that from the beginning, it would have been a, a big accelerator in its own, its own right. And it's something I, I certainly plan to continue to invest in now. I'm so fascinated by that. Like, what does that 
look like specifically for you? And because you, now you've got a podcast, I, I don't know if you bring on guests or if yeah. it's, you bring on guests. So this is yeah. now going to be a system of meeting people, but the harder part for most people is the system of building the relationship and giving value to these relationships. So now that for you, that's accelerated where you're going to be meeting more interesting people, especially as your podcast gets bigger, you're going to have bigger guests on and so forth. You really need that system, which you have. Is this like a CRM of some kind where you can have an idea of when you last contacted them, how you can provide value and who you're connected to and so forth? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the guests I had on Jordan Arbinger was one of the people that articulated this idea so well to me. And he, he does use a CRM system himself. Um, and so I haven't, I haven't gone to a full CRM system, although I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but, but I just have, I've created my own sort of personalized document that, I, that's, that keeps it simple. Uh, but, but I mean, I'm just literally talking about like, first of all, you list everybody, you know, do a census. And as I say, that's actually quite overwhelming. And it's an ongoing basis because it's, you're always meeting people. You're always connecting with people. Uh, and, and then yes, you're gathering, you're gathering useful information and you're, and you, then you are keeping a track of what the last outreach was and you're thinking, and this is as important as the rest of the system. You're just thinking, what do they want? What do they need? You know, you take this is a long-term investment. This isn't mm. how do I achieve the goal I want to achieve in the next two weeks. This is a how can I serve them for the next year or two, and never ask for anything. Imagine if you did that. I started meeting some really interesting entrepreneurs, and, and we become friends. And one of them just completely swears by this. He's just like, as soon as I decide I want to, like really. I don't know quite what the right word is, but know someone, build a relationship with somebody. He just commits to like a year or two of service to them. Mm. That's like a really interesting strategy. Yeah. Because if you show up again and again, and you, it's not like, oh, I'm going to do this finally, 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 there'll be something I, I want from you. It's just like, no, I'm just really in the orientation of serving. It means that if he ever calls me or texts me, I, I know who I'm, I'm thinking of someone particularly right now. Of course I'm there for him. Mm-hmm. There's a real relationship. He isn't just tapping when he wants something. Most people are doing that exactly wrong. They become what my friend Adam Grant talks, uh, calls you know, being a taker. You're just, you're just showing up. You're turning up when you want something only. So then you, you're going to build a reputation as a taker. Well, you can, you can achieve a lot as a taker. <laughs> people can achieve a lot in that orientation, but it's very different if you're showing up, hey, how can I help you? And even if you get proactive about that, where you're just thinking about what they're trying to achieve in their life. What would, what would be important to them? And how can I, how can I try and introduce them to someone that would help them achieve that? How can I, uh, somebody, somebody did it recently to me. They, 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 I don't remember how we got connected, but a fellow author and somebody I really like, uh, and he just, after we got connected, um, he immediately followed up with me saying, Hey, listen, I was just on this podcast. I think it'd be great person for you to be connected with Mm. and it was a high profile person and it was sharp and it was smart and they just introduced me immediately and i'm like yeah now we're friends you invest you give something of value the reciprocation is deep in humans very deep it's kind of back to the mimetic stuff it's like we we want to reciprocate and so you that this is you just got to take the first step you've got to be the one serving you've got to be the one that's generous and, and sometimes, sure, maybe, maybe I'll get taken advantage of sometimes. Okay. It, it's fine. 
uh, compared to the benefits from it. Yeah. And it seems like the key part is give without expectation because I think it's so. not. Yeah. But it's, it's still being smart about it. It's not like you're giving hundreds of hours to something to, to, sure. to someone thoughtlessly, but it's saying, it's saying, can I, can I do something valuable in five minutes? Can I do that? The five minute favor. Adam talks about that. The five minute favor. Is there someone I can introduce someone to within my network within five minutes? Hey, here's, here's the person, here's who they are, the high quality people go. It took you five minutes to do it, but that value to those two people could be enormous. That, they could have value for years from each other. And you now are part of that value creation and your investment was relatively modest. And of course, the whole nature of networks, the, the, the network effect is there. So the more valuable they become, the more valuable they become. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's tremendously valuable. And for anyone that thinks that having some sort of a system and a CRM for relationships seems counterinteractive, I mean, look at the other side. Like you don't want to be the person that shows up, as you mentioned, whenever they need something. That's, that's yeah, really always, the uh, ultimate thing. Jordan said it this way. He says, always be serving, not always be selling. It's always be serving. And so your system, there's nothing wrong with a system. It's only, what, it's only whether the system is designed, is, is optimizing you know, uh, strategic generosity, you know, thoughtful generosity, or whether it's systematizing self-centeredness. You don't want a system that does that. Um, so that would just be a bad system. But if you can build a system that makes it, you know, effortless to create value to people that matter to you, uh, and we just multiply that steady, steady investment in that over 10 years, 20 years or 30 years. I mean, like it's really extraordinary and exciting to think about the cumulative effect of that. Yeah. That's exciting. Just to get me think about it. Now you're kind of making me re rework and re you know, reshape the whole process <laughs> of, of networking. So it's got me excited. I'm sure it has for a lot of people, but <laughs> Greg, I also want to be respectful of your time and all the insights that you provided us were, were just tremendous. So I highly recommend people, if you liked any of the advice, insights, knowledge that Greg shared. Obviously, you're, you're going to want to check out his books for Effortless, Essentialism, Multipliers. I think we've got a few more as well, but those are certainly the key ones um, for me personally. And of course, the What's Essential podcast uh, where you've got great guests on like Jordan Harbinger, many more. Uh, where else can people find you online, Greg, and how can people connect with you? Uh, really excited about a system that, we've, uh, that we're building and just announcing it's at essentialism.com. Uh, it's a full essentialism Academy and, uh, people could totally go check it out there. That that's going to be, that's a long-term investment there. People are going to get a lot more value than they, than they ever put into it. Uh, because it's, uh, because of everything we've been talking about here. Uh, so it's a, it's a long run thing, but basically it's just going to be, it already has tons of high quality, like, um, masterclass type videos, uh, in bite-sized chunks of like how to be an essentialist, how to make those changes as effortlessly as possible. Uh, but there's how uh, to do essentialism at home with a family. I mean, there's like a whole series of things, but the content will just keep going. And so people just can access once they access, like the all access pass, all of the content over time, they will just have access to. So that's where it's amazing. Go. It's the dot com. You actually got the dot com for that. It's, you got the dot com. Fabulous. <laughs> 
That's such a great domain, by the way. So congrats you. to you on that. That's amazing. Very easy to remember, of course. Essentialism.com, guys. Greg, thank you so much for your time, all the insights you share. We're going to link all of this stuff below for people to check out. And uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in and for Greg for making the time. Really appreciate you. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.